Chapter 8 of the Old Testament book of Esther today. So feel free to turn or swipe there if you've got a Bible or device. Uh, this chapter-by-chapter chapter journey through this book thus far has been filled with unexpected turns and has been thick with irony, especially last week. Uh, I want to begin today with just giving a bit of a review of where we've been thus far in this story. So this story began with an impulsive king, King Ahasuerus, who is drawn to excesses, especially with wine. And King Ahasuerus, we found at the beginning of the story, was becoming enraged with his wife, Queen Vashti, when she refused to sexually parade herself in front of a brood of drunken men. And this led to the king and the man who did his thinking trumping up charges against the queen and deposing her of her position. And this then led to a search for a new queen, a far and wide search which revealed even more unseemly aspects of the king and his wicked heart. Ultimately, a Jewish woman named Esther was chosen as the new queen. <clears throat> Soon after this good news for Jewish people, though, trouble began brewing for Jewish people. Remember, these, the Jewish people are foreigners where they're living here in Persia. They had been exiled from their land into this land known as Persia and had chosen to not return to their homeland, which they could have done. Now they are faced with the threat of extinction because the king's right-hand man, whose name is Haman, has tricked the king into making a law that calls for a day of killing all Jewish people. And so, not surprisingly, Jewish people within Persia are thrown into chaos. Esther, as the new queen, feels conflicted, but eventually she risks her life by going into the king when she is not allowed to do so. And as she approaches the king, we see a profound example of grace in her. She is welcomed by the king, and he is welcoming of her request of him. Ultimately, Esther exposes the desire of Haman to kill the Jewish people, including herself. Haman, who very recently was euphoric from all of the good he had experienced in life and was convinced he would be able to depose the one agitation in his life, a Jewish man named Mordecai, by hanging him on a gallows he had specifically built for him, now found himself in a position where he was ultimately hanged on the gallows that he had built for his greatest enemy. And this brings us now to Esther chapter 8. So I'm going to invite Nathan up to come and read Esther 8 for us uh, to try and save my voice as I'm getting over a sickness. Esther chapter 8. On that day, Ahasuerus gave the queen Esther, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. 
And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamidatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Thanks, Nathan. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this chapter, for this book. I pray that we would be able to hear what you have for us this morning. Pray that ultimately our faith in Jesus would be built. So have your way in our hearts. 
Where they are hard, would you tenderize them, soften them, and allow us to hear the good news of Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Okay, so I want to briefly summarize this section of what was just read in Esther 8. So after Haman is killed, his household is given over to Mordecai. Furthermore, King Ahasuerus gave his signet ring, the same ring that he had at one time given to Haman. He now gives it to Mordecai. So talk about irony here, right? It's thick. But Esther realizes these events haven't resolved everything for her or her people. And so she again goes to the king and she pleads with him to revoke the law that had been made, al- made that allowed for the killing of Jews. The king states that a law cannot be revoked. Okay, so that, that law that had been written cannot be undone. However, a new law can be made. And so that is what Mordecai does. He, along with the help of the king's scribes, creates an edict that allows for the Jewish people to be able to defend themselves when they are being attacked. If they are attacked, they are able to fight back and to kill those and to plunder those who are seeking their destruction. Now this law was spread quickly throughout Persia and resulted in the rejoicing and jubilation of the Jewish people throughout the land. This law also struck fear in the hearts of non-Jews as it says that some of the non-Jews began associating as Jewish people. Okay, so there's a number of things I want to, in this story, that, that help us move toward Jesus and move toward the gospel. Even though this is the Old Testament, right, and Jesus isn't explicit here, there are things going on in this story that help move us towards Jesus and the gospel. And this is really what makes any preaching Christian preaching, is that it gets us to Jesus. It gets us to the gospel. First of all, I want to note the complete turning of the tables that occurs between Haman and Mordecai. So Haman intended to kill Mordecai and to revel in his own superiority through Mordecai's death. Ultimately, the exact opposite happened. Haman was the one who ended up being killed. But then, on top of that, Mordecai was given his position in Persia. But not just that, he was also given his household, his authority, his material possessions as well. And what we see in this turning of tables is a hint at Jesus' death on the cross. So the evil intent in killing Jesus was that sin and Satan and wickedness would have their day. Now the story in Esther hints at the gospel because Jesus, unlike Mordecai, was actually killed. Jesus went all the way into the grave. And we also see in Jesus' story, we see the gloating of evil and the mockery of Jesus, the spitting at him as he dies on the cross. And yet, despite the fact that Jesus hangs on the cross and he dies, goes into the grave, the tables are going to completely turn. In what looks like Jesus' certain destruction is actually the certain destruction of sin and Satan and evil. Everything that the realm of wickedness thought it was accomplishing in killing Jesus was actually a condemnation of itself. And Jesus ultimately would be raised. 
He would rule over heaven and earth. He would possess all things. He would be seen as the true king. And we see hints of this in Mordecai and what's happening with him in Esther 8. Now, I think it's really important for us to take what's happening here in Esther 8 to its ultimate end. Because if we don't take it to the ultimate end of Jesus, we will begin to think dangerous thoughts. We'll read a story like this, and we will begin to put ourselves in Mordecai's position. I mean, how many of us, probably all of us, there's likely someone in our lives we'd enjoy turning the tables on, surprising them in some way, causing them to be caught off guard, defeating them. And, and we can take a story like this and moralize it in a way where we can just make it all about ourselves. But the Bible's not about us. It's for us, but it's not about us. The Bible is about Jesus, first and foremost, primarily. And so we've got to read this as getting us to Jesus and making this about him, not you and me. Okay, so... Mordecai was given the signet ring from King Ahasuerus. And I think it's easy for all the Jewish people here to celebrate and rejoice because there is a sense of salvation that's occurring here. But I think it's also good for us to read this in a measured way. We've got to consider the source of where this ring is coming from. This is King Ahasuerus, right? This is a dirty dude. His decisions seem to change more than the direction of a kite on a windy day. The ring that Mordecai is wearing was just on the finger of Haman. So based on the whim of the king, that ring could be on someone else's finger tomorrow. The authority that people seem to have today is very fragile. Here in our realm. Whether that authority is good or that authority is bad, it's very fragile. And I've found this to be really comforting. As I think about cultural drama that may occur, I think about things happening in this world that maybe I disagree with or maybe it causes fear within me in some ways as well. Everything has a shelf life. Everything has a shelf life. It might be for my whole life, but it still has a shelf life. Jesus ultimately is going to rule the day. The tables are going to be turned. Whatever that thing is that you look out at and you're really scared of that thing or you're concerned about that thing, the tables are going to be turned. Jesus is going to rule. And that's intended to bring peace and comfort to us as we walk through dark days. Now, despite Haman being defeated, despite evil taking a beating, there still remains a threat for the Jewish people. In the face of Jesus defeating evil on the cross, we still face wicked threats today. Though Satan is defeated, he is not killed he still prowls around. This is what 1 Peter 5, 8 says. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan still has the same initiative he always has had. 
Satan is a deceiver. He has no issue utilizing a part of truth, even a part of Jesus' truth, if only to skew it in some way that twists it for his own purposes. Evil, Satan, seeks to deceive us with the ultimate intention of destroying us. This is the initiative of Satan, to deceive and destroy. I think if Satan could have it his way, he would have us giggling to our destruction. That's what he would love. And this is still true for us today. Satan's desire each and every day when we wake up is to deaden our perception to spiritual things. His desire is to minimize the impact of sin in our own lives. For us to think, as we look out around this world, to think, well, at least I'm not that bad. At least I'm not doing what this person is doing. He wants to minimize the impact of sin or how horrible our sin might be in our own lives. He wants to stifle our desire for gospel-centered living. He wants us to prioritize things that may be related to Jesus, but aren't actually Jesus. He wants to encourage us to listen to the wisdom of this world over and against what Jesus has spoken to us and for us. He wants to busy us up with anything, anything that seemingly satisfies us in any way. But all of this, all of his efforts, all of his uh, expansion of energy, expending of energy is for the sole intent of doing the only thing that evil does, which is to deceive us and ultimately to destroy us. This is why people talk about having a wartime mentality in the way in which we live our lives. We live in the West where comfort and pleasure are esteemed. They're actually just natural for us to pursue these things. But we've got to understand Satan uses comfort and pleasure for these same purposes as well, to deceive us so that we might be destroyed. Now, as we go back to the story in Esther 8, we encounter a curious deal. In the face, or detail, in the face of an ongoing threat, the fact that this day is still coming when Jewish people can still be attacked, they can still be killed, they can still be plundered, the detail we read is there is great rejoicing that occurs within the Jewish community. This canon should be instructive for us today also. We live in the midst of a world and a culture that is hemorrhaging at its seams. Conflict, fracturing is everywhere around us. There are tons of reasons for sadness. And maybe this causes us to kind of walk through life moping at times, despairing at times. And this is where our faith is tested. Who or what are we trusting in? Is it something bigger than, sturdier than, stronger than, more lasting than the things in this world? Or do our hopes fade with our 401k as it plummets? Or do our hopes fade with our health? Or with our children's disobedience? 
Do we believe that Jesus sees us and knows us and loves us and will conquer all things in the end? In the face of adversity, do we still have reason for joy? When hardship walks into our lives, do we know the secret to contentment? Esther 8 depicts for us that joy is available. Even when the threats are still coming at us, we can still be a people filled with joy, marked by joy, when it makes no sense to people around us. Maybe the question is how, though. And the question maybe can be framed, where is joy to be found in the midst of sin and in the midst of struggle? And I would contend Esther 8 hints at that answer. This is ultimately fully answered in the New Testament, but it's hinted at here in Esther 8. So in Esther 8, we read of an old law that cannot be revoked, but that is superseded by a new law. And this points to how the first arrangement God made with his people will be superseded by a second law, by a better law. So in Esther 8, the law to annihilate the Jews was still in effect. It was still there. In fact, the king states that the law cannot be revoked. What is clear here is that this law brought death, at least to God's people, to Jewish people. The law brought death. It led to the destruction of Jews, but the mere presence of this law resulted in grief and hopelessness amongst the Jewish people. Now, let's think for a moment about the initial law that God gave to his people. And what I'm talking about here is we can summarize this with the Ten Commandments, okay? We can see there's a lot of correlation between what resulted when God gave the Ten Commandments to his people and what's happening here as well. So we read in Deuteronomy 28 that God spoke to, his, to Israel, his people. He says, if you obey my commands, you will be blessed. If you disobey my commands, you will be cursed. Now, if Israel was really good at obeying God's commands, this doesn't seem like a big deal, right? In fact, it would seem very advantageous. They obey and they're blessed. This is a great formula. It works out great for them. But what we learn really quickly is that Israel, and when I say Israel, I mean every single one of them stink at obeying God's commands. They're horrible at it. They are chronic disobeyers, which means they are cursed. As Brett pointed out last week, how every man who hangs on a tree is cursed, so is every individual who breaks God's law as well. Being cursed by God brings about grief. Being cursed by God will result in hopelessness. If this is the only law, there's no reason for hope. Everyone is hosed. There is no hope to be found anywhere. And this is why 2 Corinthians 3 speaks of the law in a number of ways. It says, the law kills. 
This is talking about Old Testament law. Think Ten Commandments, okay? It says, this is the ministry of death. The ministry of condemnation. No, no one's going to read 2 Corinthians 3 and think, man, I want to make my whole life about the Ten Commandments. No one in their right mind would think that. Hope is not found in us. I think that's part of the reason God gave us the Ten Commandments. Hope is not found in us being really good at obeying. Hope is found outside of us. We can't look within. We've got to look beyond ourselves. The only hope is for there to be another law, a better law. And what we read in the New Testament is that Jesus comes and he fulfills that first law that God gave to his people. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. And in so doing, Jesus set that law aside. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus makes that law, the new covenant or the old covenant, God's initial law to his people, he makes it obsolete. He does away with it. And so then, Jesus ushers in a new law. A law that's predicated on grace. Where he saves by grace. And so Jesus is the one who ushers in a law that is truly good news for us. And so here in Esther 8, we hear a whisper of this progression from a law that brings death to a law that offers salvation. And this heralds good news to us today in a world fraught with death, as conflict rages around us, when so many things seem to be headed in a negative direction, there is hope that is unmoved. Despite all of that, Jesus is still on his mission to seek and to save the lost, people like us. He still draws near to the brokenhearted. Jesus never leaves his beloved to themselves. Jesus is our defender. He is our savior. Jesus provides us the very things that we are looking for today. Maybe not the things that we think we're looking for, but he offers us the things that we are truly, at a heart level, deeply looking for. An escape from sin. Jesus is our curse bearer. He takes that upon himself and in so doing is willing to remove it from us. And this is grace. This is grace. And this is the last point of emphasis I want to focus in on here from Esther 8. There's this little phrase at the end of Esther 8. It says, many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So what we find here, people are aligning themselves with God's people. This is also what we see happen in the New Testament. The good news of Jesus is proclaimed to the whole world, and many non-Jews align themselves with the Jews. They're called Gentiles in the New Testament. They align themselves 
with the Jewish people. And what we, what we learn is that God's people are not defined by ethnicity, but they're defined by faith in Jesus. God's people can be Jewish ethnically, but they don't have to be. God's people are a church, and this church is made up of a diverse multiplicity of ethnicities and ages and socioeconomics and skills and abilities and preferences. But here's the difference to what's going on in Esther 8, is we're not scared into obedience. We're loved into faith, into obedience. God doesn't seek to change our hearts through the mechanism of fear. True change comes about by grace. People aren't typically drawn to terror, at least terror that's done to them. Right? People enjoy terrorizing, especially terrorists, right? They enjoy terrorizing other people, but no one enjoys being terrorized themselves. But we do remember and are strongly impacted by undeserved kindness. And that's what grace is. Undeserved kindness. Grace breeds trust. And it's clear that Jesus is calling people to trust him in a full, complete, holistic way with everything in them. The fact that he was willing to die to save his followers shows the extent to which he desires people to trust him. He's giving himself completely. He's not holding anything back. why he is trustworthy. If Jesus simply sought to scare us into trust or into obedience, this would have the same impact as a parent who abuses their child into compliance. It doesn't breed trust. Just fear and terror. And that child is eventually going to run away. They're going to try to escape that. And this preaches to us why Jesus is better. Why Jesus is better in every way. This leads us into our gospel application. We do gospel application because we want to focus on what Jesus has done. Okay, not what we need to do. When we walk out of here, the point is not what you need to do. The point is what Jesus has already done and you exercising faith in him, trusting him, not trusting in yourself, okay? So our one point of gospel application this week is Jesus offers salvation by grace. I think, especially if we've been in church a long time, that can just kind of go in one ear and out the other, and it doesn't strike us. I've heard that a million times. The reason, one of the reasons this is so profound is because it's so different from everything we experience every day. There is no coercion here. None. There is no shame that Jesus is heaping upon us when he comes to save us. 
There's no terror. That's not what he's doing. He's not even putting on us a law saying, keep all of these laws and then I will save you. That's not what's going on here. There's no working hard enough, being good enough. That's not what's happening when Jesus comes to save us. Jesus offers salvation by grace. It's a good gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't do anything. You believe in Jesus. This is a message that should never get old for us. We are saved not by our works, but by Jesus' works, by his efforts for us and to us. That's the better law. The law of Christ. Jesus is the better law. So this week when you find yourself thinking, I need to or I should be or I need to be better at whatever it is or some other legalistic imperative, just stop and remind yourself that your acceptance in front of God isn't predicated on you doing any of those things. I want to be really clear. Grace isn't a license to not care about spiritual things. Grace isn't a license to indulge in sin, thinking, ah, Jesus will forgive me. I would say if if that's what we think grace is, we have no understanding of what Jesus is doing on the cross. We have no understanding of the suffering he's undertaking for us. Grace doesn't make sin small in any way. It shows our sin to be horrific and massive. Jesus offers salvation by grace. This is the clear call of Ephesians 2. Let me read this for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works. And the reason for this is that so that none of us can boast in our salvation, at least in ourselves. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of the things I love about these verses is that it makes it really clear that good works come out of salvation. Good works don't lead to salvation. Good works are a result of salvation. This is the beauty of faith being exercised. It takes the shape of good works. Right? John and Angela, they're not doing what they're doing to earn anything from God. What we're seeing as we look at their lives and and as they walk through this is we're seeing a beautiful depiction of faith being exercised. That's what's beautiful about it. It's not look at them, they must be earning something really impressive from God. No. This is faith being exercised. That's what makes it beautiful. They're trusting in Jesus. Not in them making that decision so that then God will look at them and be pleased And then maybe they can go to heaven. No, 
They are trusting Jesus, believing this is what he's called them to. And we get to stand on the sidelines and cheer them on and say, that is beautiful. Faith in Jesus is beautiful. It produces good works. That's a good work that's being produced from faith in Jesus. And that's awesome. As we trust in Jesus' grace, in his efforts, in his works, not in our own, there is so much joy and so much freedom and so much hope found in that. We won't find joy and freedom and hope like this anywhere else. And I know all of us, we chase after those things. In a Netflix show, in a hobby, in a vacation, we chase after those things. All of us in different ways. But the joy and the freedom and the hope that we're yearning for deep within us will only be found in Jesus. Only Jesus. So revel in him. Rest in Jesus' grace. He saves us and keeps us by his grace. Let's enjoy that. Let's pray.